0: eight service flag i'm morgan shortle and you're listening to the june 2nd 2010 podcast from the kansas historical society in this podcast museum staff reveal the story behind the story about artifacts featured on the cool things section of our website kshs.org America celebrated Memorial Day last weekend. Originally called Decoration Day, this nationwide observance is a day of remembrance for U.S. Soldiers who have died in the service of their country. Many soldiers' families place service flags in the front window of their home to indicate a family member in the armed forces. Join Museum Registrar Nikala Zimmerman and me as we examine a service flag displayed by a Kansas family during World War I. And then it's Tarzan's birthday. That's right, June 2nd is the birthday of everybody's favorite Hollywood Tarzan, Johnny Weissmuller. So, what better way to celebrate than by connecting him to William Allen White? Did Mr. White have a thing for swinging on vines? Find out when we play Six Degrees of William Allen White. But first, Service Flag. Good morning, Kayla Hello, Morgan. And today we're going to talk about a service flag or a service banner from World War I. Um, but first, can you describe the flag for our listeners? Sure. It's a small flag,
1: um, rectangular in shape. And at the center, it has a field of white silk. And it's bordered on all four sides by wider bands of red silk. Uh, there's a single blue star embroidered at the center of the white field. And the words over there are embroidered above and below the star.
0: And there's a string attached to a wooden dowel at the top to
1: allow to be hung. Hmm.
0: And just to remind our listeners that you can see an image of this service flag on our website, www.kshs.org. That's right. And uh, so what's the significance and meaning behind this service flag? Well, service flags are um, a show of sacrifice and patriotism,
1: patriotism <laughs> that began during World War One. Um, The Department of Defense, to this day, allows the flag to be displayed by families who have members serving in the armed forces during any period of war or hostilities. So anytime we're in a conflict, you're likely to see these banners hanging in people's windows. Um, The number of stars sewn on the flag indicates the number of service members that the family has serving in the conflict. Um, So if they have two sons or a son and a daughter, there'll be two stars on the flag. Um, And if they just have one, there's one, like on our flag. If the stars are blue, it means that the person is still living and the blue is meant to represent hope and pride. And if the stars are gold, it signifies sacrifice, meaning the soldier has died in battle. Um, Though it's commonplace to see service banners in the window of a home, The War Department also frequently used them in posters to encourage men to enlist. So this seems kind of odd, though, because, you know, know, what it represents, that's going to encourage people to enlist. But um, it was kind of a patriotic rallying point.
0: Great. And who owned this particular particular flag? And was it purchased or homemade? Um,
1: Our service flag was originally owned by a woman named Elizabeth Tweed. Uh, She was the mother of a soldier named Jerry Tweed, and the family was from Beloit, Kansas, so kind of north central Kansas. Mm -hmm. Um, Jerry enlisted in the Army in 1917 and did training at Fort Riley, and then he served in France. he arrived in time to provide support for the Musargan Offensive, which was kind of a major event in World War I. Um, his mother actually made the flag to
0: hang in the uh, window of her home while her son was serving overseas. Were there Was there a standard pattern that they had to use, or could they put anything on there that they wanted to, besides just the red and the flag? Or right.
1: The... Um, typically, the flag just had the white field with the red border and the stars at the center. Uh-huh. That was kind of how it was invented. It was developed by a man in Ohio who had two sons that were serving overseas at the time and he developed the design and patented it um, to display in his own window and then it kind of caught on in popularity in Ohio and a congressman from Ohio got it into, um, passed it into Congress. So then it kind of became an official symbol. Okay. But, yeah, and There was a standard design. And this, this flag has the words over there embroidered on it, what is the significance of that? Right. Um, that makes our flag a little unique, because typically they didn't have um, wording on them. They were just the stars. Um, the phrase references a song that was popular during World War One. George M. Cohan wrote the song entitled Over There in 1917, um, and the lyrics speak of a soldier's duty to his country and making his family proud by serving, and it also warned America's enemies um, in its lyrics. It said, the Yanks are coming, and they won't come back until it's over over there. Ah. So it, it Definitely showed that her son was serving in World War One. And are there are service flags still in use today? They are, and you can see them um, in homes and businesses currently because of the conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, the popularity of the flag has kind of ebbed and flowed over the years. They were very popular during both of the, the World Wars, but then diminished um, during the conflicts in Korea, Vietnam, and the Persian Gulf. But um, Recently, they have regained popularity, and I could think there's there used to be a correlation between the popularity of the conflict, you know, Vietnam, uh-huh. not such a popular war, so people weren't as excited to say, hey, my son's serving over there, yeah. you know? But now we kind of have more of an attitude, you support the soldier no matter what, so they've kind of made a comeback over the past few years. I see, and did Jerry Tweed survive World War One? And if so, what did he do when he returned? He did survive the war. Um, he stayed in Europe for a couple of years after the war ended, um, and he drove officers in eastern France and western Germany, including General Pershing. So, mm-hmm. yeah, he got some celebrities in his car. But um, he eventually returned to Beloit and got married and then um, served as a partner in Black Tweed Motors there in Beloit. Um, and he and his wife later owned an ice cream store.
0: So we wow. had a happy
1: ending. Yeah, yeah. excellent.
0: All, <laughs> All right. Thank you, Nicaela. Sure, no problem. Now it's time for another round of Six Degrees of William Allen White, and joining me today is Museum Director Bob Kekeisen. Hello. And still with us is Museum Registrar Nikayla Zimmerman. I never leave.
2: Yeah. She's an expert.
1: <laughs> Jack of all trades.
0: Master of none. <laughs> and it's June 2nd, and everyone must know that it's Johnny Weissmuller's birthday. Oh. It's a mouthful. And I can already picture the looks on our younger listeners. Like, who is this? Yeah. Bob, you picked this, right? Yeah, of course. Of course. Now, I'm, I mean, I'm not that
2: old, but you guys should know who Johnny Weissmuller is. But the man is a legend. <laughs>
1: so just
2: put
0: it that way.
1: Or Tarzan is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay.
0: okay, well, since you picked him, you can give us some background on Mr. Tarzan. Okay. Well, Johnny Weissmuller
2: was born on this day in 1904 in the Austro-Hungarian Empire, what is now Romania or according to some accounts, maybe Serbia, or there's, it's a little dicey where he actually was born, but <laughs> he wasn't born in the United States. And his parents named him Johann Peter Weissmuller, and the family of three emigrated to the United States in January of 1905 when Johann was less than a year old. And they settled in Windenburg, Pennsylvania, and that's going to be important here in a minute, so remember that. And he soon adopted the Americanized pronunciation of his first name and became Johnny Weissmuller. At the age of nine, he unfortunately contracted polio, and at a doctor's suggestion, he began swimming to build his strength and to to combat the disease. And the family moved from western Pennsylvania to Chicago, where Johnny continued his swimming, and he worked for, as a time, as a lifeguard at Lake Michigan, some of the beaches there. (coughs) And in August of 1921, he won the national championship in the 50-yard and the 220-yard swim. So he's national champion. And the next year, he broke the world record for the 100-meter freestyle. And then next up for him was the 1924 Olympic Games in Paris. And this is where his time living in Widmer, uh, Windber, sorry, is important, because in order to be eligible to compete for the United States, Weissmuller claimed to have been born in Pennsylvania rather than Austria-Hungary. Because in order to get his passport, he had to produce legal evidence of his citizenship. And he chose Winburg because his younger brother, Peter, had actually been born there and baptized there. So they used the baptismal record from the church in Pennsylvania that says there was a Peter Weissmuller. Remember, Johnny's middle name is Peter. Mm-hmm. So it's like, well, there's a mix up in the names, and it's Peter Weissmuller, and that's me. And that's oh, okay, fine. Although, <clears throat> pardon me, there were questions in the press about Weissmuller's birthplace, but that was <clears throat> pretty much all forgotten when he went to Paris and won three gold medals. Of and course. And then everybody's like, oh yeah, he's American. <laughs> <laughs> well, he also picked up a bronze medal as a member of the U.S. water polo team, and then he won another two gold medals at the 1928 Olympics. Well, his Olympic fame translated into a modeling career for BVD, the famous <laughs> underwear makers, <laughs> And he modeled underwear and swimsuits, and he was soon noticed by Hollywood and was cast in a movie called "Glorifying the American Girl," mm-hmm. where he appeared as Adonis wearing only a fig leaf.
0: Oh, he was quite wow. the specimen,
2: I guess. <laughs> well, he appeared as, as himself because he's this very famous Olympic gold medalist now, and he appeared as himself in a couple of movie short movies. But he got his big break in 1932 when he was cast as Tarzan. And he went on to star in six Tarzan movies for MGM with Moreno Sullivan as Jane and Cheetah the chimpanzee. You've ever seen any of that? <laughs> and his trademark was this kind of yodeling type yell, which we. Played at the top of this segment, which I won't try to emulate. Here,
1: <laughs> that's why Bob's so hoarse today. Yeah, yes. he's I'm just, practicing his yodeling, working, working
2: on the call, but I just don't have it in me today. But uh, he left MGM for RKO, where he did another six Tarzan movies. And after twelve Tarzan movies at these two studios, for which it's estimated that he made about two million dollars, uh, Weissmuller went on to star in a series of movies where he played Jungle Jim rather than Tarzan. And in this case, they. Got rid of the loincloth and he's in a more of a safari suit and a slouch hat, It's you know, sort of a jungle Indiana Jones, I guess. Uh, and he did thirteen of those movies. So he's, you know, pretty well set in the jungle. And <laughs> after his movie career, he tried a number of different business adventures, some with more success than others, and finally retired to Florida in the mid-1960s, although he continued to make public appearances and even worked as a greeter at the MGM Grand Hotel in Las Vegas Hmm. in the mid-1970s. His personal life is pretty interesting as well. He had five, count them, five wives (laughs) over the course of his life, including actress Lupe Velez and three children with his third wife, Beryl. Well, in the late seventies, his health began to decline, and he and his last, last wife, Maria, moved to Acapulco, Mexico, which was the site of his last Tarzan movie. So I guess it had some significance for him. And he died there on January twentieth, nineteen eighty-four, and was buried in Acapulco. And at his request, his famous Tarzan yell was played as his coffin was lowered into the ground.
0: Oh, nice. So,
1: there you go. <laughs> <Do> you. <sighs> What a guy. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Did he get to keep his medals when they found out that he wasn't born? Oh, yeah.
2: I think they just all, you know, it really didn't come out that he actually wasn't born in the United States, Mm -hmm. I think, until close to his death. It was in the early 1980s when they were finally Mm -hmm. doing it. And it was pretty well known amongst the Romanian um, community that that's where um, the Romanian community uh, in Chicago where he was growing up that that he hadn't been born in this country but they kind of understood why you know he wanted to do this and they were proud to have one of their own be a national hero so everybody just kind of you know played along with it. evidently his son Johnny Weissmuller Jr. didn't find out till after his father's death that his father had never been born in this country so huh. he was saying wow and people said he wasn't a very good actor but he pulled off the lot <laughs> yeah. ever all of these years so
0: okay well thank you Bob mm-hmm. and Kayla let's hear your solution assuming you have one I do have one yes
1: and I was so hoping that I could tell you that as the spokesperson and model for BVD yeah. Johnny Weissmuller um, inspired William Allen White to wear the underwear but that would be a lie so I can't tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> but wouldn't it have been awesome yeah.
2: <laughs> White was more of a Hayes moment. yeah yeah,
1: yeah. yeah. Okay, so, down to the real solution.
0: Inappropriate visuals here.
1: (laughs) Get those out of your head. Okay, so, okay, down to the real solution. Though he is best known as Tarzan, as Bob mentioned, Weissmuller made his movie debut in the film Glorifying the American Girl, which was a 1929 musical comedy. That film featured several celebrities of the 1920s in cameo appearances, and among them was Ring Lardner, who was a sports columnist and a short story writer. Well, Lardner kind of had a fascination with the theater, and he wrote a comedy for Broadway with um, a famous playwright, um, George S. Kaufman. Kaufman was a member of our favorite, oh, the Algonquin, Algonquin Round Table, <laughs> <laughs> and I think our regular listeners can take it from here. William Allen White had connections with several members of the Round
0: Table, so. Okay. There you go. Well, thank you, Nikayla. Sure. And Bob, would you like to issue the challenge for the next episode?
2: You bet. Well, our next podcast will be on June 16th, which is right smack dab in the middle of National Dairy Month. So... (laughs) We want you to connect William Allen White with the well-known dairy mascot, Elsie the Cow. And if you want to throw in an utter joke, that's perfectly fine with (laughs) us.
0: It's utterly fine. Or send ice cream. That's fine, too, for dairy.
2: Yeah, Yeah, no account of (laughs) sheep.
0: Okay, so if you think you can connect the Sage of Emporia with the most recognized cow in American advertising, just send your solution to podcasts at kshs.org. That's podcasts with an S. concludes episode 108, Service Flag. To see photos of the Tweed Service Flag, go to our website, kshs.org, and click on Podcasts. To find out about our latest podcast posting or other new artifacts and photographs acquired by the Historical Society, check out our Facebook page and become our friend. Or you can follow us on Twitter. Just search for Kansas Historical Society come back in two weeks when museum curator Blair Tarr stops by to tell us about Carrie Nation's hammer. Did she really use it to smash up bars? Join us in two weeks to find out. This podcast has been a production of the Kansas Historical Society. Real people, real stories.